0: It's the law, and don't ask me why.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are joined by civil rights attorney Hannah Mullen to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term. On the docket this year are cases that could further undermine the Voting Rights Act, topple federal Indian law and affirmative action, End the ability of individuals to vindicate their rights under Medicare and allow state legislatures to dictate the outcomes of federal elections. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left our rights dark and murky like the water in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, I am Peter. (laughs) Is that really?
2: (laughs) That hurts.
1: You guys said it like I did it. I didn't do it. I want it to be fixed. (laughs) I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon.
3: Hey, hello.
1: And Michael. Hey, everybody. And our friend, Anna Mullen. Hi. Welcome to the show.
3: I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for asking me.
1: We are glad you're here. Today, we are previewing the upcoming Supreme Court term. And to help us, we've brought Hannah on. Hannah is a civil rights lawyer and, more importantly, our friend on Twitter. Yeah. We try to be responsive to our audience. And, of course, they've been clamoring for us to have more white women on the podcast.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Direct request. Yeah.
1: We resisted for a while because there's already a Supreme Court podcast catering exclusively to white women. (laughs) Uh, But we have finally relented.
2: stupid (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) we are going to walk through some of the higher profile cases uh, on the court's docket this year from medicare funding to tribal rights voting rights affirmative action all the things that will be stressing you out next year and ria think you're you're kicking it off here right health and hospital corporation of marion county the Talevsky.
2: Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, Just like the name, it's long. It's complicated. It has... So many things happening. This case has to do with the spending clause. It has to do with 1983 civil rights lawsuits, Medicaid, other federal legislation. The administrative state, uh there's a lot going on. What's interesting I think about this case is it hasn't been really discussed very much mm-hmm. in terms of cases that are coming up in this term, but it's really important. It's a big one. So just wanted to put it on people's radar. All right. We can start with the Constitution. We start there a lot. The spending clause. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to tax and also to spend money. And Congress can basically spend money in three categories. Congress can pay the country's debts. Mm -hmm. They can provide for the defense. And then they can spend on general welfare. That's what the spending clause says. Now, Medicaid is one such law. The federal government is authorized to spend money on poor people's health care because of the spending clause in the Constitution. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I also mentioned 1983. We've talked about 1983 cases before. These are civil rights lawsuits based on a law that was passed in the early 1870s. It gave people the right to sue state officials for violating federal laws and federal rights rights. That's not just constitutional rights, but rights established by the federal government. You can sue a state official for violating those rights under Section 1983. So let's talk about the facts of the case. This comes out of a nursing home in Marion County, Indiana. It's a nursing home that's run by the state. This is not a private facility. So Georgie Tolevsky lived at this nursing home, and he had dementia, this facility gave him basically a bevy of unnecessary medication just to sedate him, to like restrain him all the time. And then they also transferred Mr. Tolevsky to another facility far from his family without any notice. They didn't tell anybody and they didn't get their consent. Now, pursuant to Medicaid and Congress's spending power, there's a law called the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, which establishes the rights of residents of nursing homes that receive Medicaid funding. So FNHRA, the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, says that you can't give unnecessary or dangerous medication to nursing home residents just like as a consequence or just for convenience. And it also says that nursing home residents can't be moved to different facilities without notice and without using the proper procedure mandated by law. So Mr. Televsky actually passed away, and his family sued on his behalf through his estate, saying, look, you clearly violated the FNHRA. You violated Mr. Televsky's rights that these federal laws establish so you, as the state provider, we can sue you under 1983, state official violating rights under federal law, right? hmm So what is really sort of ominous and deeply concerning about the case is what the state of Indiana is arguing here. They're arguing that actually there is no cause of action, no option to sue under 1983 because of two things. First, they say the FNHRA, you know, that federal law that establishes rights for nursing home residents, Yes, that statute establishes rights, according to Indiana, but those aren't really the federal rights that are protected by 1983. And second, which is which is an even broader kind of argument, the state of Indiana is saying that actually 1983 can't be used to secure rights under spending clause statutes at all. So remember, this is Medicaid, this is a big federal law that is passed because Congress has the power to spend for the general welfare, right? The state of Indiana here is saying any law that's passed under that spending power, these laws that establish poor people's rights across a plethora of of social welfare issues, Indiana is saying there's no private individual right to sue us when we violate those laws. So, you know, implications here are pretty bleak. When your rights to Medicaid funds are are violated by the state, you have no remedy under Indiana's argument here. If 1983 causes of action are not available under congressional spending programs, to the extent that we even have a social safety net in this country, that's it, right? That's how people sue when these kinds of rights are violated. Mm -hmm. So big, big implications about not just Medicaid, but any statutes that establish people's rights that are passed pursuant to the spending clause, Hannah, I'd love to hear your input.
3: I don't know how much I know about it. I know I have a lot of feelings about it. okay, yes, we like those too <laughs> i'm I'm in danger of of going on and on. My outline for this case is three pages single spaced, but um <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: <a> outline outline <laughs> loosely. Yeah,
3: the paragraphs I wrote in prose about this case are three pages. <laughs> um, but it's it's I think it's hard to overstate on sort of first-cut explanation how surface-level bananas the argument is here, um, yeah. just when you sort of walk through the statutory text at issue, right? Section 1983 provides a cause of action against any person who under color of law deprives another of any, direct quote, rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and, in brackets, federal laws. Right. So if a state actor violates your rights that are secured by a federal law, section 1983 is your cause of action.
0: Right. End of story. That's it.
3: Right. End of story. Right. That's should be pretty straight up and down if we're all textualists now. Right. And the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act actually uses the word rights in the text Yes. That's directly at issue. The right to be free from any physical or chemical restraints. Transfer and discharge rights. So the right not to be transferred involuntarily. So that seems open and shut. It should be pretty simple to match up rights secured by a federal law and the rights in the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act. And the way that the state of Indiana basically tries to get around the very broad and apparently on point text of Section 1983 is, again, an argument that sounds really, really wacky on, like, first, second, third, fourth, tenth glance, which is that at the time that Section 1983 was passed, in the 1870s, Indiana's claim, which is very hotly disputed in the briefs and should not be taken At face value, Indiana's claim is that, well, under the common law rule at the time, as applied to contract law, third-party beneficiaries, so that's people who are not parties to a contract, but somebody else who is getting the benefit of that contractual relationship, if the contract was breached by one of the parties, that third-party, non-party to the contract couldn't sue to enforce the contract And so that's sort of the lead argument in the brief, leading to the question, what does that have anything to do (laughs) with the federal cause of action, Section 1983?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, this is the primary strategy of conservatives right now. It's just like you go back in time until you find some bullshit reason in like historical legal analysis. Right, why their position might be correct, and then you uh, you stop there. Exactly. Well, it's not just
3: conservatives yep. now, right? Like this has been, and the the way they hook that contract law discussion into supposed relevance into the interpretation of 1983 and spending clause statutes is that the court for a while has held up contract law as quote unquote analogous to spending clause legislation. The idea being that when the federal government gets a state to agree to some sort of condition in order to receive federal funds. That's kind of like a contract. The state and the federal government are agreeing to something and the federal government is giving them money. So principles like notice and you know things not being too coercive that we find in contract law yeah. that Should apply there.
1: Where does that land you vis a vis individual constitutional rights? Right. Right. Or rights that flow from constitutional rights?
3: The argument is well, I looked at this contracts hornbook from 1871 and it told me that third party beneficiaries can't sue. So we should just assume, even though there is absolutely nothing in the text of section 1983 and basically no indication that Congress actually was thinking about third party beneficiaries' contract law. Modern spending clause legislation wasn't even a thing yet. Right. And they're trying to import that supposed background principle into the interpretation of 1983. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's worth emphasizing, too, like whether or not analogizing spending clause, general welfare legislation to contracts has some merit in, in some contexts. Here, it is just an awful model for how this legislation was written right? If Congress is outlining the rights of residents in these facilities, that's clearly not like a third party beneficiary model here, right? This is social legislation. This is designed to protect a class of American uh, residents, right? Right. That's the whole thing here, right? Like these are the subjects of legislation that to protect them and, and casting them as sort of These ancillary players that are like, you know, just receiving these benefits as like a a side to this contract that's mainly between the federal and state governments. It's just totally nonsense.
1: Right. Yeah. All right. Next case. (laughs) (laughs) We should do the next case. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Merrill v. Milligan. All right. Uh, Michael, take it away.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Merrill v. Milligan, this is a case about Alabama and the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, it's going to be a good one already. <laughs> just, just on those facts. Nothing right? else. Nothing else. So between 2010 and 2020, the relative Black population in, in Alabama increased pretty substantially. And so after the 2020 census... There was a question as to whether during this round of redistricting, the state of Alabama would increase the number of majority-minority congressional districts in Alabama from one, which it had been for the previous decade, to two, because Black people were up to 28% of the population. Now, the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, has this protection it protects against vote dilution, and it has been used in the context of racial gerrymandering to prevent a sufficiently large minority block from having its vote diluted by being packed into a very small number of districts or cracked amongst a large number of districts to the point where they have very little or no ability to affect who their representatives are. Right, and, and so that's what this case is about. Is Alabama drew their seven congressional districts with only one majority minority district. They packed a bunch of black voters into one district and then cracked all the rest amongst several other districts, even though black people are almost a third of the state, they're only getting one out of seven districts where they'll have a chance to, you know, pick their representative in a three panel district court found. That Alabama had violated the Voting Rights Act and provided 11 different maps that they said could satisfy the Voting Rights Act and all its requirements um, that would provide two rather than one majority-minority districts. This got appealed to the Supreme Court, who, without opinion, stayed the district court's ruling so that the current election will be held under this unconstitutional map hmm. while they decide whether or not essentially to change 30 years plus of, of jurisprudence. Right. Uh, I think it's 36 years, actually, uh, whether or not they're going to throw it out the window. And in the meantime, you know, we'll just have to.
1: Uh, well, this election will be held under an unconstitutional map, but don't worry. They will say that it's constitutional next year and then we can all rest easy. Right. Exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. And so what's concerning about this case is there are hints Based on the the arguments Alabama's making and a very short, concurring opinion that Justice Kavanaugh put out when they stayed the lower court opinion, um, sort of explaining what was going on. One part of this test, the Gingles test, you have to sort of demonstrate that the population in, in question is capable of sustaining... A district where they would be a majority of the population, but that district would have to be compact and contiguous and would meet have to meet all these other criteria, race neutral, sort of classic redistricting criteria. And what Alabama is arguing is when demonstrating this, you cannot consider race in the drawing of these maps and in the demonstration of this and doing so is a violation of the 14th amendment the equal protection
2: clause. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, longest pause in the history of the world. <laughs> it's hard,
0: it's hard to it's hard to explain.
1: <laughs> it might be well, it might be worth noting where the voting rights act comes from because like the 15th amendment prohibits discrimination in voting and expressly says that Congress has the authority to pass laws to enforce the amendment right That's what the Voting Rights Act is, right right It's, it's a law passed with the specific intent of manifesting the prohibition on racial discrimination in voting mm-hmm. And so when you say that you can't consider race, I mean, <laughs> it's it's you're literally saying well you can't you can't factor race into your racial discrimination analysis right. it's it's just, it's, it's, here, bullshit. it's
0: total nonsense it's in keeping with like the modern conservative weaponization of the 14th amendment mm-hmm. and their sort of attempts to reify this like colorblind constitution as if that wouldn't be total nonsense to the drafters and and the, uh, the ratifiers of the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, right, which were specifically designed to make sure that black people were made free and equal citizens, right? Like the idea that right, there right. was like anything colorblind about that uh, at all is is total nonsense.
3: It's also the uh, one can make a safe assumption on the surface based on the fact that Alabama, the state, is making this argument. The map was drawn by the Republican state legislators Mm -hmm. that adopting Alabama's race blind argument would lead to benefits for the Republican Party.
1: Absolutely. Right.
3: That's sort of just logically on the surface of the case. But there's actually a really interesting law review article by Nick Stephanopoulos, who's a law professor at at harvard and joe chen who's a political science professor at michigan that they published last year in the yale law journal just showing that like incredibly rigorously using these like cutting edge randomly generated maps in a technique that's become common in the political gerrymandering context but they describe it as the first time they apply that method to the racial gerrymandering context and they just prove like yes if you have to take race out of the analysis completely, and you can't think about ensuring that minority, which in the South means Black communities, have the ability to elect their preferred candidates, it would lead, especially in Southern states, to significant drops in the ability of Black voters to elect their preferred candidates. So right. um, it would effectively like further dilute the, the voting power of Black voters.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a crazy coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Who, would, who would guess? All right. Well, Next case. Uh. <laughs>
3: <Wait>. <laughs> that sucks. Anyway. <laughs> okay. uh,
0: before we continue, and I think this is something to to note, you know, this is only one step in like a multi-step process that they're like objecting to the use of race in, first of all. And then on top of that, within this step, race is only one factor amongst many factors right that's being considered here it's right. like whether these districts are contiguous and compact and keep together communities of interest and all this other stuff race is just one factor so i think this sort of also as we'll talk about later i think this foreshadows a lot of what we're going to see in the affirmative action context right right uh, as well
3: yeah the best way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race originally. yeah exactly yeah.
0: This, this this nonsense
3: this is a good spot, it feels
2: like, to take a break. And we're back.
1: Next case, Brackeen v. Holland. Anna, all you.
3: All right. So Brackeen is a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's brought by two groups of plaintiffs. One is Texas. As a state plaintiff, there were several states that challenged the law in the lower courts. Texas is the only one that's taking the challenge all the way to the Supreme Court. And then there are also seven individuals, which are three non-Indian couples who tried to adopt Indian children, and then one of those Indian children's biological mothers who supports the adoption. And so ICWA was passed in 1978 in response to outcry and a long series of congressional hearings about the breakup of Native American families, which just as a note, in the legal context, the doctrine is referred to as Indian law, right? Native Americans are referred to as Indian. So that's why I'm going to use the term Indian throughout this discussion as well. And there's a horrible history of essentially ethnic cleansing of Indian children being removed from their homes, and put in non Indian white homes, which effectively, you know, broke tribes ability to pass their history and culture down through the generations and was sort of an existential threat to tribal identity
1: we talked about this in adoptive couple v baby girl and i think recently too but the percentage of children getting adopted out of indian homes was above 30 right above 30 percent of all children getting adopted out of native homes Uh, like really wild numbers right yeah
3: yeah and the the Congress in its hearings basically determined that the two major causes of the problem were the federal boarding school infrastructure, which had been taking children away from their families and sort of putting them in educational settings designed to take them away from their culture. But then also, (laughs) as Peter just mentioned, state child custody proceedings that were having children be adopted out of their families and out of their tribes. And so The Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in response to that. And as relevant to the case, there are three main requirements that ICWA imposes on state child custody proceedings when they involve an Indian child. The first is that any party seeking an Indian child's removal from their family has to give notice of those state court proceedings to the child's parent or Indian custodian and their tribe. The second is that it prohibits a state court from ordering a child's removal unless it makes certain findings, including that the continued custody of the child by the parent or Indian custodian is likely to result in serious emotional or physical damage to the child. And then third, it establishes Standards for the placement of Indian children in foster or adoptive homes that include that preference must be given, absent good cause to the contrary, to placement with a member of the child's extended family other members of the Indian child's tribe or other Indian families.
2: Right. So it establishes that kind of like priority, right? Like if an Indian child is going to be adopted, ICWA basically establishes the the priority is that the child goes to a member of their own family or their own Indian tribe, somebody in their community, essentially, before being adopted out by a non-Indian family. Right.
0: And there are some white people who are (laughs) totally steamed about this. (laughs) Yeah for totally non-weird reasons. Totally (laughs) normal, normal shit. Yeah,
3: go on. (laughs) (laughs) And so these white people who are upset about this for totally normal reasons that I do not have any critiques of basically bring four challengers. They're coming at ICWA from all kinds of different angles. Three of them are challenges that are... Alarming in their own right, but probably not the headliners. Um, They argue that it's beyond the scope of the Indian Commerce Clause to pass ICWA, um, that Congress didn't have the power to do it. Um, There's an anti-commandeering challenge for people who want to brush up on their Fed courts, that the standards improperly sort of co-opt state courts and state agencies. And then there's a non-delegation challenge because like we have to drink every time there's a non-delegation <laughs> challenge to a federal um, action, because I think it's now just in the checklist of things you have to bring. But those three challenges would decimate ICWA, but that's it. They're sort of hived off to the particulars of the, of the law. But then there's an equal protection challenge, which is the blockbuster. And that's the argument that The classifications in ICWA, so the references to Indian and non Indian and the sort of treat the way the law treats those groups differently, are racial classifications under the Equal Protection Clause, and therefore they're subject to strict scrutiny. And that is an argument that, if the court adopted it, would basically blow up Indian law because there's a centuries old understanding dating back to literally before the Constitution itself that. Indian tribes are political. They're separate sovereigns, right? Mm -hmm. And so the federal government interacts with them in a political capacity and laws treating Indians or Indian tribes differently. That's a political classification subject to rational basis review and very much within the tradition of how Congress and the federal government interacts with Indian tribes, not racial classification subject to strict scrutiny, because as we all know, strict scrutiny Strict in theory, fatal in fact, if classifications treating Indians differently than non-Indians in federal law were subject to strict scrutiny, it would be extremely difficult for basically the field of Indian law to survive. Right. Right. Right.
2: All
0: right. Well, (laughs) no concerns there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Which, just to be specific about it, though, right, like Indian law includes things like reservation status, land use, water rights, gaming, and there are a lot of non-Indian white people, who I'm sure are very offended by ICWA just because they think a lot about the rights of white people that want to adopt Native American children. But it would also be, for example, a huge boon for casino companies. Yes, Mm -hmm. oil companies. Oil companies, companies that resent the fact that sometimes Indian tribes are treated differently for the purposes of water rights. There's a lot of money to be made if Indian law were to be decimated.
1: Has, like, yeah. the Wynn Corporation filed an because that, <laughs> that might be the end of me.
3: <laughs> well, it's it's funny you mention it, though, but, like, Matt McGill, who's the Council of Record from Gibson Dunn for the petitioners, he's the chair of Gibson Dunn's betting and gaming practice group. Hmm. Hmm. He challenges Iqua hmm. like, for hmm. a living. <laughs> well, well, well. <laughs> Gibson represents two hmm. out of the three largest casino groups in the world. So, you know, maybe it's just a fun coincidence, but, like, Rebecca Nagel of This Land did a whole episode basically tracing the intersection of right-wing lawyers like Matt McGill and Paul Clement, who bring pro bono challenges to ICWA on behalf of non-Indian families that want to adopt Indian children, and that they have massive casino clients, especially, and in some cases, oil and gas clients. So
1: literally, the bad guys in Ocean's Eleven are suing. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh-huh. Well, let's move away from these cases where the conservatives are trying to do away with racial classification, specifically to target programs designed to combat historical racism, and move into affirmative action. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. A quad. Students for Fair Admissions v. UNC and Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard. Two cases, not consolidated but being handled separately challenging two different affirmative action programs, one at Harvard, the other at the University of North Carolina. The reason they are two separate cases is uh, essentially because UNC is a public school and therefore has to abide by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says that people must receive equal treatment under the law. So the question there is whether race-conscious admissions policies violate the Equal Protection Clause. And frankly, this one's sort of a done deal. Like, there's just no way the conservatives uphold state school affirmative action, a clean six to three, uh, unless there's a real curveball here. The more interesting case, maybe the more variable case, is against Harvard, which is, of course, a private school. And so the claim there is different. The claim there is that the admissions process violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act by discriminating against Asian American students in particular. So I think it's probably important to understand the Harvard admissions process a little bit. I will, of course, simplify, but applicants are assessed across five categories, academics, athletics, extracurriculars, personal, and uh, willingness to participate in eyes wide shut sex parties. (laughs) (laughs) From those, they are then assigned an overall score, but you can essentially get bonus points for various things, one of which is racial diversity, but also includes socioeconomic diversity, geographic diversity, whether you are the child of alumni, donors, faculty or staff. The score you get is not what your admission is based on per se. It's just sort of a tentative rating. There's further discussion recommendations for admission are made to the admissions committee and they review everything holistically and make decisions what's interesting is that there are essentially two arguments being put forth here in the broad sense one is that harvard should not be allowed to factor race into admissions full stop yeah the other though is that their admissions process discriminates against Asian American applicants, primarily because Asian American applicants score notably low in the personal category. That category includes things like essays, recommendations from teachers and guidance counselors. Without speaking to the merits of this claim, I just want to point out a little bit of irony here because this is a complete inversion of the traditional argument against affirmative action, right? Yeah, exactly. The conservative position has always been basically like Admissions need to be based on merit alone. So if black students have worse test scores and GPAs on average than white students, for example, so be it. Right, Uh, Right. we, We must abide by the scores. Now those same people are saying, well, hey, wait, Asian American students are performing worse by this personal metric. So even though it's race neutral on its face, it must be discriminatory, which reveals, I think, that it's not unfairness that they care about per se. It's just their perception of what the natural hierarchies are and their desire to see those hierarchies replicated uh, in school admissions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: And we should say that like we're pretty sure on the results here. You know, we're not in the business of like predicting how Supreme Court cases come down usually, but the writing is on the wall for this one, mm-hmm. just in terms of, you know, one of our very first episodes was Fisher v. Texas. And so there have even been recent cases in the Roberts court, right, that indicate that now that it's a 6-3 supermajority, they're done with affirmative action. Yeah. They're not. At yeah.
1: least the race conscious admissions are almost certain. Certainly done. Right. The swing votes aren't even there, right? Roberts is notoriously anti affirmative action, so they don't even have him to try to pull to the left. Right. There's just really no chance. Mm -hmm. I just don't see a way where race conscious admissions processes survive.
2: Right. I think that's right.
1: And finally, last but not least. God, this this case.
2: It's been a slog. Yeah.
1: Moore v. Harper, independent state legislature. Let's go, Ray.
2: Yeah. Um. So it's really funny because in preparation for this episode, we all said that we weren't really going to talk about Moore v. Harper for very long. But there's just a lot to say. Yes. So, and each one of us said something distinct as what we wanted to contribute to this part of the discussion. So
0: Yeah, we're like, it's well covered. We'll probably have to do an episode on this, maybe even before Rick. the case. So we Rick. should go light. And then, as we're like outlining, we're like, well, and I want to say this about movie Harper. I want to say
2: this. real pissed about some things. So
0: yeah. we'll see how we do. Keeping yeah.
2: So we are planning a whole episode on it, but let's just jump in. Moore v. Harper. This is a North Carolina case, case out of North Carolina. And people might have heard of Moore v. Harper, not by name, but by, you know, media talking about this independent state legislature theory. So that's the issue in Moore v. Harper. And... I gotta say, independent state legislature theory is fucking wild. It is it is a fucking wild idea. So, basically, what independent state legislature theory is, is that... With regard to elections, the Constitution grants authority to state legislatures to design and implement federal elections how they see fit, right? So right now, you know, there might be different rules in different states for what is needed to register to vote, the congressional districts that are drawn by the state legislature, you know, on and on, etc. So your state legislature, according to the Constitution, is in charge of designing and implementing Federal elections. Now, what the independent state legislature theory says is that not only do state legislatures have control over those mechanics, but they have exclusive control over these rules and they have total authority to determine how federal elections are conducted without any limitation from what state courts. Might say, or what their state constitution might say, right? So, for example, if, if a state constitution, if the Texas constitution said that partisan gerrymandering is illegal, is prohibited, the Texas state legislature would be unbound unrestricted by that constitutional rule in Texas, and they could still gerrymander, however that state legislature pleases with respect to federal elections, right? So taking it further, a legislature could Maybe, for example, set new election rules that take power away from voters when picking electors for the Electoral College. And they could do this without any checks and balances from the state courts or their own state constitutions. This kind of argument probably first comes up, like in terms of in the modern era, with a little bit of prominence in Bush v. Gore. The Bush team was originally arguing that, you know, the Florida state legislature had exclusive control over that federal election and that whatever the Florida state Supreme Court had to say didn't matter. Right. And then independent state legislature theory came up, of course, again during the 2020 election with the Trump side wanting Pennsylvania, for example, to change its rules about how they selected their electors. So, yeah, this is kind of percolating up, but would be inserting absolute chaos, really, into how federal elections are conducted state to state. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this whole thing kind of has me thinking about the 17th Amendment, which is the amendment that established direct voting by the people for senators. So this was passed. The 17th Amendment was passed in like 1910, 1911. and Before that, state legislatures elected senators directly, meaning like senators represented your state government in Congress, not the people, because the state legislatures were the ones electing and sending senators to Congress. So the people would have no representation at all in the Senate. And of course, that kind of system is really rife with abuse. Special interests and political machines gain control of state legislatures. They elect their own puppets and business elites for representation in the federal government. So, you know, I'm not saying our our money-filled elections are necessarily better now, but just noting that, like, legally here, independent state legislature theory sort of signals a a mask-off kind of casual agreement with, with, like, a much less democratic system that, in many ways, like, we already had before and we got rid of because it wasn't fucking working. Right, right. right.
0: It, it feels like a throwback to those days yes. uh, where, like, state legislatures had, were more, had more primacy in the relationship. Exactly. Mediating the relationship between the public and the federal government. Right. And you can sort of, like, see how less democratic things were at the founding, how disconnected the people were from the federal government, right? You could directly elect your representatives in the house, but you couldn't directly elect your representative in the Senate. Right. You couldn't directly elect the president, right? The electoral college does that. And then the president nominates the Supreme Court and the Senate confirms them. So there's like all these degrees of separation between the people and the federal government.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And
0: this definitely does have like echoes of that,
1: of like reinserting these barriers.
2: Yeah. Peter called it anti-democracy, right? Like it's an anti-democracy stance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's probably worth noting here just pragmatically. I mean, the court has allowed for largely unfettered gerrymandering regimes, mm-hmm. meaning that one party can seize control of state government power, gerrymander the state to death, and effectively insulate themselves from Democratic input. And then on top of that, those state legislators who no longer represent the will of the state at all, if this theory is brought to fruition, could functionally circumvent the will of the people in federal elections, including in presidential elections, by potentially very directly choosing a winner themselves. The president then chooses his own judges who oversee all of these processes. Right. Creating a feedback loop of undemocratic institutions at every level of government, a complete break of the government from democratic responsiveness.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So
3: at the the risk of being sort of the well actually nerd in the chat. (laughs) Let's hear it, Hannah. I think I disagree about that it naturally flows from the version of the independent state legislature doctrine that's laid out in the briefs that flows from the time, place, manner description in the elections clause, that that would necessarily lead to state legislatures having the ability to set aside the results of the ballots that actually did come in the door and appoint their own electors.
1: Well, I think you're introducing this idea of what does the state legislature have to do to ensure that the will of the people, quote unquote, is overwritten and there has been sort of ongoing debate about when they would have to step in. Right. And I think the common understanding and sorry if I'm just speaking past your point here. No, no. no. But the common understanding, I think the sort of common sense understanding, and there's court jurisprudence to back this up. If you tell the people of your state your vote counts, then there are certain things that you are sort of guaranteeing them in terms of their vote actually meaning something, meaning that a state legislature could probably not allow the election to move forward, say they don't like the results, and send their own slate of electors right, right. in the presidential election. Right. right, but if in advance they decide we are not going to go the classic democratic way, nothing is stopping them. Right, that's sort of my understanding of the options presented.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. the The distinction I wanted to be careful to draw is an ex ante, ex post distinction, where the independence. Yeah, if
1: you want to talk like that. You could say
3: that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Little Latin never killed anybody. But the point is, it would basically clear the way for them to set whatever rules they wanted for federal elections on the front end. But the thing that I'm scared of is, like, accidentally shifting the Overton window so far that if the independent state legislature doctrine is adopted, like the Jeannie Thomas approach to trying to steal an election after the fact— suddenly everybody would just think that that was okay. And like, no, there would be a separate fight about like that still being extremely illegal.
1: Yeah.
0: So here's what I would say to that. One, I'm fairly confident that part of the ex-ante rules that they, they'll put in will be various escape hatches about concerns about fraud and and whatnot, and mechanism by which if the legislature has lost confidence in the electoral count or whatever, that they will reserve the right to send their own slate of, of electors, which will be uh, unreviewable. But also, like I think the reason why we should assume the worst here is because, uh, like Ree said, this came up first, most prominently recently in Bush v. Gore, when the Florida State Legislature was contemplating the possibility that Al Gore would win in the recount... And they wanted to send Bush electors anyway, right? right? That's where this came up. That's what they were contemplating doing is precisely what we're saying is maybe not a concern. That's what they were considering doing. And that's where this came up. And one of the people who testified to Florida's legislature was John Eastman, you know, architect of Trump's post-election coup strategy.
2: That's right.
1: And also Clarence Thomas bought the argument, right?
0: I mean- yeah.
2: Yes. And he yeah. joined Renquist. Yeah, I was gonna say Renquist, did which
0: too. Seemed to, yeah, went out of its way to basically be like, yeah, we would have been on board with that. So I think like if you look at also like I was reading a thing, 538 had had a whole piece on Republican nominees who are election deniers, right? And 60% of Americans will have an election denier on the ballot. Uh, Something like nearly 40% or over 40% of Republican nominees either fully deny the results or partially deny the results of the 2020 election. Uh, And a good like 15 to 20% of them are just being super fucking weaselly and refusing to even answer questions. So they have like 115, 120 Republican House members as heavy favorites to win their districts who are election deniers. Like, we have to be realistic about what the Re- Republican Party is right now, what they would do with unfavorable results in the next election. And in that context, to what degree the Supreme Court is on board with the project, right? Like, are they going to be telling Republican Party to tap the brakes here, to slow down, to maybe have some pro-democracy heads reassert control, or are they going to be putting on the green light and saying, fucking go wild? And right. that that's right. my concern. Uh, the, the precise shape of what the next challenge will look like is almost impossible to predict, but whether or not the Supreme Court is down for the project is is
1: a big concern. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it. It had three votes twenty years ago. Yeah, that feels scary enough. At least more or less. All right, that's all the cases (laughs) that we decided to cover. (laughs) Yeah,
2: there are others that are real bad too.
0: If you're like these are interesting, but I want to learn more, you just wait. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure we will be doing full episodes on every one of these in the next fifteen months. Those hard
1: lessons are coming. Yeah, not seeing a surprise win coming on any of these, but you you never know. Right.
0: Clarence Thomas is old. It could, it, could, it could happen. It could happen
1: for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The stress on the heart of having to hear Jenny at the breakfast table every uh, morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we should talk about like big picture what this upcoming term, like what the narratives surrounding it are going to be. We've seen like abortion and gun rights be dealt with. And now it seems like maybe the conservative legal movement is moving on to like, quote unquote, lower priorities, some slightly less big ticket items. But, you know, it feels like we're about to just sort of jump right in where we left off. And I want to reset a little bit because in the summer of 2021, the dominant legal media narrative was the idea of the 333 court. Yeah. Term had been largely uneventful and people wanted to explain it by claiming that there was like a strong, moderate block of Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. We did a whole episode about how uh, dumb and wrong that framing was. And I think the good news is that it was so clearly wrong that no one is even trying to defend it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the media narrative has just shifted completely. Right. We'll probably do an upcoming episode sort of updating the state of legal journalism, but the question moving forward is whether there's any sort of reckoning within legal media about why they got it so wrong and what it says about their understanding of the court as an institution. So it'll be interesting to see how they cover this term, whether they are like still looking for nuggets of hope that there is institutional legitimacy here or whether they become pragmatic.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, looking at all these cases, I don't want to say a lot we've talked at length already in this episode. But looking at these cases and my impression for the next term, I just want to say, when I look at this list, right, I see, we talked one, two, three, four, five cases. I see three of the five as being involved in some way in racial justice. I kind of just want to make the point, right, that we think of and we are taught that the Supreme Court did cases about race. That was in the past, right? But the work of racial justice, at least through the courts, keeps on happening, is happening today, and that the project is contra what we're taught about it in school. The process today is about dismantling and getting rid of legal protections for minorities, whether that's voting, whether that is admissions into institutions of higher education, whether that's adoption. It's still happening, I guess, is my point. Right. That's absolutely right. Should we wrap? Let's wrap it.
3: Anyone want to talk for 40 more minutes about Talevsky? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Adam thanks for joining us. <laughs> we appreciate your time.
3: Yes, and your smarts. Um, thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you so much.
1: It was yeah. a joy.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Next week Tanner v. U.S case about how drunk a jury can be before it's not okay mm-hmm. <laughs> and spoilers pretty drunk
2: <laughs> they can party is what the supreme court they said. can get down they can
1: have fun you'll hear all about the world's coolest jury next week you can follow us on Twitter at 5-4-Pod and subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 5-4-Pod, all spelled out, to support us and get premium episodes, ad-free episodes, special events, access to our Slack, all sorts of shit. We'll see you next week. 5 to
0: 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Percia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial
1: Relations. I'm going to go ahead and pull up the right document instead of the wrong one, and we'll get on the road. <laughs>
2: Hannah we should say that like Rachel is our awesome producer like if you want to say something
3: over if you mess up and want
2: to just take it again like we
0: will probably take second takes every now and cool. then
3: and I would I would be careful about offering me something like that because I'm like the girl who after the party dissects every single thing I said and why it was the dumbest thing alive. I
2: used to be like that on the podcast. I'll be judicious. <laughs> yeah.
1: If you think you said something stupid later or like incorrect, just let us know and we yeah, can sure. like we we review. Uh, we can put in,
0: in uh, you know audio of me going that's dumb, <laughs> 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 not correct, <laughs> not wrong.